Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. The following is a murder mystery. The date? February 1st, 1922. The setting? A posh bungalow at 404B South Alvarado Street, Los Angeles. At around 7pm, the occupant, the acclaimed film director William Desmond Taylor, received a visitor in the form of his close friend, the actress Mabel Normand. During a turbulent time in Normand's life, the two bonded over a shared love of good books. Taylor, it turns out, was Mabel Norman's rock. Previously, when the actress hit rock bottom via excessive drug use and partying, it was William Desmond Taylor who finally convinced her to check into a sanatorium. She had a cocaine habit for the ages and was reputedly drinking like a fish and severely burnt out. Many feared she was not long for this earth. The recent death of Olive Thomas had hit very close to home for her, causing Normand to obsess she was fated to die in much the same way. William Desmond Taylor stepping in and insisting Mabel get some help that autumn saved her life. This night was a school night, a Wednesday with an early start for both the next day. So the friends did not keep company into the wee small hours. The couple had a few orange martinis and chatted. Mabel grabbed a book William had promised to lend her. William shared the shocking news that that morning he'd had to bail out his valet, Henry Peavy, out of jail. Peavy had been arrested the night before in a public park for lewd conduct. At around 7.35pm, Mabel bid William adieu and left for home. Just before 8pm, Taylor's neighbour, Faith Cole McLean, a former actress married to the actor Douglas McLean, was knitting on a porch when a loud noise startled her. Peering across to Taylor's bungalow, she caught sight of a short, stocky man dressed, to quote her, like my idea of a motion picture burglar. The mysterious figure stealthily vanished into the night. At 7.30 the next morning, the peace was shattered at the Alvarado Court Complex. Henry Peavy, Taylor's valet, was beyond distraught. Mr. Taylor is dead, Mr. Taylor is dead, the valet screamed as he fled the premises. Peavy arrived for work that morning to discover his boss face down and lifeless on the floor of the study. The police were called and wouldn't get there till a little after 8am. By this time, a landlord, several curious neighbours, and at least one employee of Paramount Pictures had entered the property. The Paramount employee seized a wire basket full of letters, then left. As the body of the 49-year-old director lay in a pool of his own blood, interlopers debated the cause of death. One of the neighbours was convinced Taylor had bled out from a hemorrhage of the stomach. When the police arrived and turned the body over, the cause of death was all too clear. A single bullet pierced his lung, passing up through his body, till it exited and then re-entered the body, striking him in the neck. 
Shocking and tragic news as this was, Paramount Pictures and the wider film community were plunged into a mad panic. Taylor was something of an elder statesman, a well-thought-of, articulate man with 60 films under his belt. Most importantly, no scandals. At this time, Christian conservative wowsers whinged, moaned, and protested about content they saw as degenerate and behavior from young actors they saw as scandalous. The people who brought America prohibition now wanted to destroy Tinseltown. Hollywood hoped a censorship office might placate them and wanted Taylor as chief censor. They hoped he would allow them to continue, more or less unabated. Unfortunately, Taylor's death opened the Pandora's box and left the industry in a no-win situation. Two actresses' careers would be ruined, and the path to the restrictive, problematic Hollywood production code would be set. What were the scandals uncovered in the wake of his death? Well, let's start with the young ingenue, Mary Miles Minter. At the time of the murder, Mary Miles Minter was a young adult, age 19. She was already a veteran of stage and screen, having gotten her break as a child star. Born Juliet Riley in 1902, to an actress mother who worked under the name Charlotte Shelby, Juliet got her first role at five years of age. Age 10, she secured a touring role in a theatre production. As child labour laws restricted 10-year-olds from going on tour, Charlotte borrowed Juliet's deceased cousin's name and paperwork. Juliet was rechristened Mary, age 12. Now proof positive that early Hollywood also needed a Me Too movement. Age 15, Mary worked with, allegedly had an affair with, and allegedly fell pregnant to a middle-aged director, James Kirkwood Sr. Charlotte was alleged to have organized an abortion for her daughter. One would rightly imagine her a far more protective mother after this. William Desmond Taylor was the next director she worked with. Taylor and Minter worked on four movies together between 1919 and 1920. Taylor did become a big supporter of, an advocate for Mary, and Mary fell in love with Taylor. She wrote William several love letters, and a lace handkerchief with her initials was found at his home. The letters were leaked to the newspapers, who published several of them in their entirety. But there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest Taylor reciprocated Minter's feelings, nor that they ever acted on Mary's feelings. The media speculated the two were secretly an item. Even worse, reporters speculated the two had been an item since Taylor was 47 and Minter just 17. And Mary did draw all manner of attention to herself in the wake of the murder. In Hollywood Babylon, Kenneth Anger stated, Mary leaned into the coffin and proclaimed for all in attendance, the corpse of William whispered his undying love for her in her ear. Now this is a silly urban legend, but it is true that on being informed of the murder, Mary insisted someone get a doctor to transfuse her own blood into William to revive him. 
She only abandoned this plan after she was taken to view William's corpse. In the weeks following the murder, media speculation went into overdrive. Reporters speculated William was in fact in a love triangle with Mary and her mother Charlotte. The question was posed, what if Charlotte had discovered William was secretly having a relationship with Mary, while having a secret relationship with her? For reasons I'll lay out later, I don't think he did. But it was known at that time that Charlotte owned a 38 caliber pistol, like the gun used to shoot William. Mary had access to this gun too, and used it once to threaten to commit suicide. Years later, when this detail emerged to the public, Charlotte claimed she'd thrown that gun away into a Louisiana bayou before the murder. Now, it wasn't common knowledge either that Charlotte had threatened to kill another director for getting too close to Mary. Whether mother or daughter carried out the killing or not, the scandal killed Mary Miles Minter's career. Mary appeared in four more films before she was let go as her contract lapsed in 1923. Now, investigations did uncover a mutual dislike between Charlotte and William and Charlotte remained a prime suspect in William's murder, until the police dismissed any speculation of love triangles. But speculation among the public persisted that Charlotte was the murderer. Mabel Normand also came under scrutiny, but for very different reasons. Similarly, the murder would ruin her career. Born in 1893, Norman took to acting aged 16, after briefly working as a model for the illustrator, Charles Dana Gibson. She caught the eye of Max Sennett of Keystone Studios, the studio which gave Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle his start. A very capable physical comedian who could pull off dangerous pratfalls just as well as Arbuckle, Mabel was something of a rarity and soon carved out a niche for herself that saw her regularly playing opposite both Arbuckle and Charlie Chaplin. From signing up with Keystone in 1912, Norman acted alongside Arbuckle in 24 movies. The investigation shed a light on Mabel Norman's wild, tempestuous and often sad life. She was a notorious party girl who loved to dance into the wee small hours and drink heavily. Ironically, the death of Olive Thomas and the Arbuckle-Virginia Rappe scandal had led to a seeking help with her drinking and alleged drug use. It had been noted Mabel had begun to look haggard and drawn, but little did the public know. She had survived a childhood bout of tuberculosis and would die of consumption just outside of frame of this tale in her mid-thirties. Her relationships were also full of sorrow. She dated film boss Max Sennett, who had cheated on her and possibly been physically abusive towards her. In the run-up to their impending marriage, Mabel had caught Mac in bed with another actress. While in a physical fight with the actress, she received a heavy bump to the head that left her in a coma for weeks. Setting aside the rumours, she too, now uncoupled from Sennett, was sleeping with William Desmond Taylor because, well, we'll come to that in a second. A murder theory was advanced relating to Mabel. The 
press reported on Norman's sanatorium stay in the autumn of 1920, and of Taylor's role in getting her in there. They also claimed, when a drug dealer came looking for Norman, William Desmond Taylor chased the dealer away. Have his drug dealer sworn revenge on Taylor? Well, Hollywood rumour mill claimed William Desmond Taylor was upsetting multiple dealers on a mission to expose all the dealers who'd ever supplied drugs to Norman. Now, of course, there were some very dangerous characters around Hollywood at this time, including gangsters like Vito Di Giorgio and the heavily politically connected Albert Marco, but this is all supposition. Being exposed in the papers as an alleged drug fiend, an unlucky in love party girl, and as a confidant of some very dodgy characters, Mabel Norman's career took a serious hit. Failing health and another incident, a few years after Taylor's murder, put an end to her career. Now before we move on, I must point out much of the talk of William Desmond Taylor's womanizing, and even the speculation he'd been murdered by gangsters, was actually spin from Paramount Pictures themselves. They were the ones that leaked Mary Miles Minter's love letters. They'd seized them before the police had arrived. They'd also paid someone to break into the house after the police had collected evidence. Their instructions were to plant Mary's handkerchief. The studio even played a part in scapegoating Mabel Norman. Strangely, they'd also started a rumor a large collection of lingerie was found in Taylor's home something we'd take completely differently of a confirmed bachelor now, but was then seen as confirmation he was a ladies' man. All of this was to cover up something they then saw as far more scandalous. Rumours circulated Taylor had been spotted at both opium dens and in secretive gay nightclubs. The studio explained the opium den away by stating he was researching an upcoming film the lingerie tale was presented as proof, not for Taylor cross-dressed, but for he was very much a woman's man. His backstory would soon be exposed and it was far more difficult to explain away. William Dean Tanner was born 26th April 1872 to an aristocratic British family in County Carlow, Ireland. One of five children, he was brought up in a large Georgian manor, situated on 50 acres of land. William's father, Thomas, was a retired army major. His uncles and grandparents were surgeons and politicians. In his late teens, William left his life of luxury behind to work on a dude ranch in Kansas. In his twenties, he moved to New York, took up acting, and dated Ethel May Hamilton, the daughter of a wealthy antiques broker and investor. The couple met through acting circles, married in 1901. A year later, their daughter, Ethel Daisy, came along. William took up a job in his father-in-law's Fifth Avenue antique store. For reasons never publicly revealed, William was utterly miserable. He drank heavily and regularly cheated on his wife. He exhibited many of the warning signs of depression, or what may well have been episodes of dissociative amnesia. 
Often distant and unsatisfied with his lot, he sometimes zoned out completely in the company of others. On 23rd October 1908, William Tanner disappeared without a trace. Little is known about his life prior to arriving in Hollywood, but it is speculated he prospected for gold in Canada and then later the USA before he joined the troupe of travelling actors. In 1912, Tanner re-emerged as William Desmond Taylor. He soon moved up the ranks in Hollywood, from actor to director. That same year, Ethel finally secured a divorce from William. She had no idea where he was until she and Ethel Jr. spotted him in a film in 1918. None of us was known to the public at large until after his death. Few in Hollywood knew of his hidden past either. He was an actor for hire at several studios, who then pivoted to directing in 1914. In 1914, he'd also met the actress Neva Gerber, who had separated from, but not yet divorced from her husband. Taylor and Gerber were an item until 1919, but never married. By 1922, Taylor appears to have been in a relationship with a young man named George Hopkins, a set designer. Hopkins worked with Taylor on the film The Soul of Youth. A distraught Hopkins sat next to Mabel Norman at Taylor's funeral. Several of the couple's friends did confirm they were a couple after Taylor's death. Hopkins being out and proud and a behind-the-scenes person, he had nothing to lose by this revelation. Though incredibly, he was also believed to be the Paramount employee, sent to grab the basket of letters on the morning of the murder. Hopkins went on to have a long career in Hollywood, designing sets until the mid-1970s. He won four Oscars for his work. In 1980, his recollections of his time with Taylor heavily featured in a book about his life. Now it should also be mentioned that William had a brother, Dennis, Dennis was a former military man who moved to New York in 1903 to be closer to William. The brothers worked together for a while in the antique store. Dennis married Ada Brennan, a lady from a well-to-do family, and had three children with her. He was a lunger and also gave Ada tuberculosis. On 25th August 1912, on his daughter's fourth birthday, with Ada in a sanatorium, Dennis also disappeared. Soon after, William got in touch with Ada and would send money to her and the children every month. Now Dennis is believed to have been a bit part, a blacksmith, in one of Taylor's early films, although his whereabouts beyond this is pure speculation. Anyone's best guess is that he died young, in obscurity, either somewhere in the USA or in Europe, most likely of consumption. But there was also speculation he'd become the mysterious Edward Sands. The recently arrested valet, Henry Peavy, was a fairly recent employee, having taken on cook and valet duties six months prior to the murder. He was a replacement for a guy named Edward Sands. The Sands, like almost everyone else in this tale, was a phony. Born Edward Snyder in Ohio, Sands was a teenage thief, turned sailor, turned member of the Coast Guard. 
Prior to working for Taylor, he'd deserted his post and shown up in Hollywood. One presumes to find fame and fortune on the silver screen. As Taylor's cook and valet, he affected a Cockney accent, in the name we all know him by. While Taylor was away on business in 1921, Sam stole several of Taylor's suits, his car and his checkbook, among other items. He'd first bragged to Taylor's driver he had information on him that ensured Taylor would not press charges, and that he intended to bribe Taylor with this information when he returned. When William did return, he fired both employees. Six months later, he received a letter from Sands, with a ticket from a pawn shop for one of the stolen items. The name on the ticket, William Dean Tanner. While it's very unlikely 45-year-old Dennis was in fact 27-year-old Edward, who we do have documentation on leading back to his troubled youth in Ohio, the rumour has persisted over the years all the same. Edward Sands was working in Northern California on the day William was killed, but he did quit his job that same day. He disappeared without a trace on the day of the murder. In spite of Paramount offering a huge cash reward for Sands, in the hopes that the manhunt would also distract from the other revelations, he disappeared without a trace. While the murder of William Desmond Taylor remains unsolved, there is one final suspect. We'll come to them in a second. First, however, it should be pointed out that the uncovering of Mabel Norman's alleged drug habit, the supposed love triangle, more fake identities and criminals than you can shake a stick at, suicides, wife abandonments, and the revelation that two male Hollywood creatives were in a loving relationship, all added up to the final nail in the coffin for Hollywood. Outraged conservatives called for film bannings in several states till Hollywood cleaned up their act. To placate these wowsers, Will Hayes, a former high-ranking Republican official, was appointed chairman of the MPPDA, an organization established to clean up Hollywood. Now on to their final suspect. Margaret Gibson was an actress who briefly worked with William Desmond Taylor at Vitagraph Pictures. She was on her way up from bit parts to a number of starring roles, when in 1917 she was arrested in a park selling opium to passers-by. She avoided prosecution, but the very public trial killed any hopes she ever had of becoming an A-lister. She continued to work in much smaller roles, under several noms de plume, most notably Patricia Palmer. In 1923, Gibson was arrested and charged with participation in a blackmail and extortion ring which allegedly took millions of dollars from wealthy businessmen across America. George W. Lasher, an electrical contractor, paid her over $1,100 to keep quiet about an alleged violation of the Mann Act. She was also connected to two men who were jailed the week before for extorting $10,000 from an Ohio bank president named John Bushnell. Gibson avoided jail, but languished in bit roles until 1929, when she suddenly packed up all her belongings and moved to Singapore. While there, she met and fell in love with an oil company exec, 
and appears to have lived a happy, crime-free life. She had no intentions whatsoever of ever returning to the USA, but did return to Los Angeles in the early 40s, after her husband was killed in a Japanese bombing raid. Gibson lived a frugal life on a widow's pension, in humble accommodation, under the pseudonym Pat Lewis. She lived with just a cat named Raja for company, let her hedges grow high and unkempt to keep people from looking in, and did her best to never leave the house, for fear of running into somebody who may know her. On 21st October 1964, Gibson had a heart attack. Sensing her time was up, she called for a priest. In her deathbed confession, she claimed she murdered William Desmond Taylor. Present at the time, a priest and Gibson's next-door neighbours. When this twist in the tale was finally revealed by the neighbour's young son, now all grown up, he recalled she gave an explanation, but he was far too young to even know who William Desmond Taylor was, let alone take in all the intricacies of the murder. Did William Desmond Taylor's killer die in agony after having been sprawled out on her own floor? In all likelihood, we'll never know. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.